Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, all that it, all that it uh, equips us with. Lord, knowledge of your scripture is essential for Christian maturity. Lord, for evangelism, for holy life. Lord, we're thankful for it. Father, I do ask that as uh, this message is preached, Lord, that um, the inspiration um, to follow this directive, Lord, to know your word is, is inspired through the spirit of God. I pray that he comes and he convicts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, last Sunday, um, I preached about what a disciple is. What a disciple is. Um, a disciple is someone who is, is a believer in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and who is baptized, and who is a learner of God. That's what a disciple is. And when we talked about that part where it says that Jesus commanded the Great Commission to go out and make disciples, and it says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, that portion, that little portion right there is what I've sort of been the motivation for the next four sermons that you're about to hear, just one today though, um, over this, this idea of discipleship. Now, I don't intend on giving you any new method here, okay? Um, there are lots of books written and great method and examples given to make the gospel clear to people, to be able to teach them about uh, the word of God, how to follow the Lord, but... Um, what's proven to be the case is that people are best at discipling other people their way. Their way. Now, don't hear me say disciple people to their truth, their way. God has given you the experiences that he's given you and taught you truth of his word in a very special way, and he continues to do that. And this is the way in which you should be imparting uh, your experiences, these examples, to people who need to know the word of God. So these milestones, is what I call them, aren't prescriptive as far as this is exactly how you do it. Now these, this four-part series is also, I'm not going to be telling you exactly what these milestones are um, made up of, which you're like, what? I came here to learn how to disciple people. Well, that's coming, but that's going to come in the form of a class that's going to be a better venue for that because you'll be able to ask questions. We can talk through things. We can clarify things. Um, and and, and it'll, really, it'll be really valuable to those people who really do desire to be disciplers. Um, so that class is probably going to happen uh, around March 26th. So that's going to be right after the sermon series. The very next Sunday, we're going to start going through these four milestones. Now, if you don't remember those, here's what they are. Four milestones for discipleship are knowledge, holiness, faith, and evangelism. If you were to take an image or the outline of a human, okay, you have the head, knowledge. Okay, so if you're drawing a little picture, if you're a, a picture person, I am, I doodle a lot. You can write in your notes this picture of a human, you put a line to the head and say knowledge, and then point a line to the hands and say holiness. Put a line to the heart's faith. Put a line to the legs. Evangelism. When we are following the Lord in these ways, milestones help us to know how far we've gone and where we need to improve. 
And this is a way that you can march through these things with a disciple of Jesus Christ, a new believer. And when they're sufficient to start growing and feeding themselves in each milestone, it's time to lay off that milestone and go to the next one. We're not here to teach them everything. We're here to show them how to feed themselves. And that first milestone is knowledge. These sermons that I'm going to do are intended to show you the importance of each of these milestones. And as a believer, I hope that it inspires you to want to grow in these areas yourself. Because you ought to be a learner in each of these things in order to be able to be the type of person that can convey these things to someone else. So that's the motivation. That's the hope. And... Uh, the rest is up to the Spirit of God. Well, let's talk about the first one, knowledge. Knowledge. This isn't the type of thing that you really want your, you're not trying to convey headiness or academia to your disciple. Teaching knowledge is important for two reasons. It makes the disciple competent to both navigate and understand Scripture. Two things. Navigate and understand scripture. Both are very important. It's pretty sad how much information we have at our fingertips today. We have so much. You can, you can get on the internet and learn and have more information than you'll ever get in any one seminary. It's true. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure Master's Seminary, John MacArthur Seminary at Grace, Master's Seminary, you can take any class that they have available online, you can take it for free. It doesn't mean you, they're going to grade your papers. You're not going to get a degree. But you can glean from those classes as much as you want. It's not for lack of information that we're not knowledgeable. There's lots out there. And yet, even though there's so much out there, this is the most biblically illiterate generation that's been probably since before Christianity spread. Most biblically illiterate. Isn't that sad? So much at our fingertips, yet no one knows the scripture. That means that people, when they get saved and they come into the church, we have to understand that they don't know things. They don't know some of these fundamental or basic things about the Bible. As basic as knowing the difference between the Old and the New Testament. They don't know who Moses was. They don't know who Jonah was. They don't know who Micah is they don't know any of these things. It's not because they're unintelligent. It's just because that has become less and less a part of our culture in America. It's to know these things. So knowing that, it's very important that we're able to communicate the ability to navigate through Scripture. How do we do that? Through Bible construction or architecture, however you want to look at it. How is the Bible built? How is it put together? What are all these books? What are the praise books? What are the epistles? What's that all about? What's, a, what's the difference between the gospels or the, a book of lament or even, even love story? There's even a love story in the Bible. Or a love poem, I should say. There's all these differences. and It's made up in different ways. You know, when I was in the Navy, um, my poor wife, all of her friends were instantly sailors as soon as she, we got married and she moved to Pearl Harbor. And when we, 
what I mean is that basically all my friends were obviously from my sub because that was my life, right? My life, day in and day out, was being a submariner. You were there most of the time, period, right? Um, and it's not as cheery as that song, We All Live in a Submarine. I'm just saying. It's just not that great. But I did make great friendships, and the friendships that I did make there, of course, we carried on into the church, and a lot of guys would get saved, and they would begin to go to church with me, and, and I had a friend that we would go, and we'd go out, and we'd evangelize with, so I had a very tight-knit community of men in my life that we had good fellowship, good Christian fellowship together. So when I got married, Aaron kind of got thrown in the middle of that. So in our home, <laughs> it would always be full of these guys, and we'd talk about submarine stuff, whether it be terminology, military people are terrible at acronyms, they just throw them out, and they expect you to know them. It's terrible. Don't, be, don't feel bad about correcting them saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Terrible at acronyms. We are, uh, you know, when, when, when people get around each other that are used to a certain job, they throw around technical jargon. They're talking about other people that they work with. And if you've been in a situation where you're, you're around two people that work together, and they start getting on the subject of work, you start to kind of drift, right? My poor wife would be in the middle of it, and she'd just like, drift off. She'd eventually just leave and go work on homework. She was transferred over to the University of Hawaii at that time. And I just never thought at the time, that was kind of rude, you know. But that's how people feel, actually, when they just kind of step into Christianity and they try to go to a Bible study. They, sometimes they won't go because they, they just don't want to feel or look stupid when they don't know anything. Because our Bible studies, quite honestly, they just kind of assume you know things, and that's okay. Our sermons assume you know things about the Bible. The Bible itself assumes you know things about it to understand it. What do I mean? Well, we believe in progressive revelation, which means that the Bible never contradicts itself as it continues to reveal truth as you go through it. But it expects you to hang on to the stuff that you learned earlier to understand the stuff later. It doesn't reemphasize things over and over and over again. And so in that same way, it can feel really confusing. So it's important for us, if we're going to disciple people on, on the knowledge of Scripture, to teach them the construction of the Bible. How is this all built up? It's, a, it's, it's good for us to know it. There's a story in Acts 20. I want to I point it out to you. Mostly because we don't talk about this story very often. I think it's kind of a fun one. Uh, but it kind of alludes to my point. Acts 20. Starting in verse 7. Now Acts is the story of the church. Right? Right there in the very beginning. Jesus rises. The church begins. And in... Acts 20, Paul has been out, and he's been doing these missionary journeys. He comes to Troas, and it says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Now, Luke is, is telling this from an eyewitness testimony. You'll notice because he says, we, right? Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So Paul was going to leave the next day, so he just kept on teaching. If anybody's ever sat under Dr. Bookman, you know what this feels like, right? He's always holds stuff off. He's, oh, I got to leave tomorrow, so ah. And he just goes and goes and goes and goes. Now, if you're a believer and you love to hear Dr. Bookman teach, it's not hard. He always apologizes, but we love it. We can't get enough of it. 
Well, so Paul's kind of doing a, a bookman here. He prolongs his speech until midnight. In verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, so there's plenty of light. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked. Still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and they had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the young youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Such a great story. I just love the fact that they just raise this guy from the dead and then they just continue their fellowship as if nothing ever happened. Eh, let's just keep going upstairs. And they go up until daybreak. People weren't getting enough of it. Eutychus was a young man who was getting bored by the message of the Apostle Paul. Sad. It's the Apostle Paul, man. For Pete's sakes, if you're tired, get up, stand up. You know, I said in the last service, when I was in the Navy, when we went through boot camp, and everybody who's been through boot camp knows this, they keep you awake all the time, and then they sit, put you in a classroom and expect you to stay awake the whole time while they teach you about the most boring, mundane things ever history of the Navy. And so you're sitting there trying to stay awake and they don't take I'm tired as an excuse. They know you're tired, right? So <laughs> about halfway through the class you look back and like half of the room is a bunch of guys standing in the back of the room because they don't want to fall asleep. So even when you're tired, it's possible to stay awake if you're really interested in the material. And Eutychus wasn't. Now, I think the take-home message there is obvious. Knowing the Bible can cost you your life. <laughs> no, I don't want to say that. But I will say, it's interesting in the Bible, we see these examples. It's important for us to stay engaged. And when you know the Bible, when you know Bible construction, when you know these names, you know these stories, it makes everything more rich. If you don't know the Old Testament, you're really missing out on the, on the value even of some of the hymns that we sing. It makes you want to sing them even louder because you remember the scripture. And it, it adds to the richness of that. If you don't like to sing in church, well, I've got words for you, but that's another sermon altogether. So understanding God's word and the construction of God's word and the knowledge is very important. Now understanding the word of God now that is the second reason. Maybe, I wouldn't say the more important one because you really can't get one without the other, can you? But understanding the word of God is vital. And it's something we want to be able to give to our disciples. Understanding the word comes in two ways. It comes from being taught. And it comes from the Holy Spirit. When Philip was was commanded to go down to that road that went south of Jerusalem to Gaza to intercept the Ethiopian eunuch there. He ran up to the chariot. The Ethiopian eunuch was in Isaiah 53, reading along there, and then all of a sudden this Jewish guy runs up next to the chariot and says, do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> he says, no, I don't. Come on in here, you know. And he says, well, who's, who's the prophet talking about with the suffering servant? Is he talking about himself? And, 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 and I'm sorry, Philip used that opportunity to make things clear to help the, the eunuch understand the scripture about Christ. And then, of course, once he understood, 
Ethiopian eunuch says, well, there's some water here. What forbids me from being baptized? He says, I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's continue on. Let's roll, right? Understanding is important. It comes by people teaching you those things. Now, we know navigation through Scripture or a roadmap through Scripture by way of knowing Bible construction. We know how to understand Scripture by this nice, cool term called hermeneutics. And for most of you, including myself, not too long ago, you could have said that word and it would have meant nothing to me because it, it just sounds like study of Herman or something. You know, Hermeneutics is uh, the methodology of interpretation. So how do we interpret what we're reading? Well, we utilize things called hermeneutics. Now, just like Bible construction and the fact that I'm not going to talk about it here, I'm not going to describe to you hermeneutics. If you want to know about hermeneutics, because you want to be able to know that sort of thing, you're going to have to come to class. Sorry. But I can show you how important it is. Now, it's important to understand the Word of God. I would say one of the more primary reasons is for the protection of that person that you're discipling and for your own protection from false teachers. Let me give you an example. There was this, uh, there was this time... Uh, I wasn't out of the Navy very long, and I was uh, at the soup kitchen, and I was serving there, and there were some people there also that, uh, that, were, that were helping, and a couple of them were uh, Mormon missionaries. You know, they had the tie and everything. And, uh, and of course, because I love to argue, I really do, I love it, you know. Some people say they're very passive, they don't like confrontation. I'm the opposite of that. To my own hurt, I really am. And this is one of those instances where I was ready to clean these guys' clock theologically. And they begin to talk to me, and they say, well, they were talking about baptism of the dead, which I knew that they believed it, but I really was surprised that they brought it up, because normally they don't talk about that stuff. And they said, oh, yeah, baptism of the dead, you know. And, and, and you know, if you really want to know baptism of the dead, the Mormon faith is basically when they believe that when you die, because you haven't been baptized in the Mormon church, you're really in big trouble, when, you know, so you go to hell jail, and in hell jail, there's somebody that preaches the Mormon gospel to you, and you're like, oh, and they say, do you want to believe it? And you say, yeah, but the problem is you can't get baptized in Mormon jail, in hell, Mormon hell jail, so fortunately, there are people on earth that get baptized on your behalf. I know, it's very confusing. I'm even sorry that I even described it, <laughs> but just in case it was your curiosity that got you. Curiosity got the cat. Well, anyway, they said, uh, uh, baptism of the dead is in the Bible. And I said, no, it's not. And they said, yes, it is. And I said, no, it's not. And they said, yes, it is. I said, no, it's not. And they said, yes, it is. And we'll prove it. I said, go ahead. So they took me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now let's all look at it together. Imagine you're here with me. There's no baptism for the dead in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15. You don't get baptized for dead people. That's what I was thinking as I was flipping in my Bible. Now, they brought me right to verse, verse, verse uh, 29 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it says, they said, it's right here. When all things, I'm sorry, uh, otherwise, why do people, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Hmm. If the dead are not raised at all, why are ba people baptized on their behalf? are baptized on behalf. He said it right there. I was like, 
what? I didn't, I didn't really know what in the world. I had never even read it like that before. So here's what they did. This is the trickiness of the heretic, okay? They put their, their her- heresy-colored glasses on your face first, okay? They first give you the doctrine that they're going to say, and then they say, now I'll prove it by showing you in the Bible that it's there. And obviously they took a verse out of context. But once you, once you see a verse in that light, you can't unsee it. Right? And I was like, oh, it's racking my brain. It's, it says it right there. It seems to say exactly what they said. They proof texted. Well, obviously I went to my, I, I wasn't going to bow down and become a Mormon at that time. I was just really frustrated that they were able to do that. And I, and I still didn't really understand the, the, why did Paul use that terminology? That's such a weird way to say it. Right? Talked to my dad and he's like, I said, well, what's up with uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 29? You ever read that before? He's like, uh, yeah. So he looked at it. I said, it's, uh, yeah, he's, he's just saying that if uh, the whole chapter is about resurrection, if the resurrection doesn't happen, if we aren't resurrected as saints, if we don't rise from the dead, then why would you become a Christian? Well, when you read it in that light, it makes a lot more sense. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people being baptized on their behalf? In other words, if you're a Christian and you share the gospel with me, and I'm like, yeah, I think I'll become a Christian. I'll get baptized. And they die. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why would I become a Christian? I'm just going to be like you. Why would I live my life under all these stipulations if I'm just going to end the same grave you are? That's what that means. Well, now it makes sense, right? Because it's it's a verse that you take in context of the chapter. That's a hermeneutic. Okay? That's, that's, that's what that means. That's a process of interpreting what the Bible means as truth. You don't just get to pick Bible, Bible verses out of the Bible so that you can say whatever you want, like, I can do all things through God who strengthens me and put it on your race car so that you win races. People do it all the time. It's ridiculous. Jeremiah 17, right? My plans for you. I have plans for you. They're plans of prosperous or plans of prospering, they're not plans of, of, of destruction. They're good plans. But that's in context of them about to be exiled out of Israel for being terrible, worthless, evil, evil, evil generation. They're about to be punished. And yet God's like, my intention here is not to completely you know, obliterate you. And yet people will use that in their commencement, their commencement verse. You know, God's got good plans for me. Okay, well, I'm sure God does have great plans for you, but you wouldn't want the fate that the same people that got that verse originally got. It's important to understand Scripture. It's important to understand it because false teachers come and they put their shade on things. Then they expect, right, that you see things their way and it's really hard to get out of that web. Let me, let me show you this instance where Jesus had such things happen to him. What does Jesus do when people come and try to put their shade of heresy over him? Let's find out. Matthew 22. We love to, we love to see how the master handles things, don't we? Matthew 22, verse 23. Matthew 22, starting in verse 23. Now, the same day, Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. Okay, this is what they believe. This was, these were kind of the guys 
that were in charge of the in charge of the temple. Um, they were very Greek. They loved everything Greek. They were very into the culture kind of thing. Very actually sort of secular in a way. Who say there's no resurrection? And they asked him a question, saying, "Teacher, Moses said." If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. Now you know that story ain't true. Who would do that? Seriously. After them, all the women died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall she be? For they all had her. Right? You see how they phrase that? They're, not, they're trying to silence him. When you silence someone, when you ask them questions, they don't know the answer, then you win, right? That's the tactic. Jesus essentially comes back, well, that's a stupid question, right? He says, even, actually even more pointed than that, he says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's a pretty pretty substantial burn, okay? Their question was wrong. It's like saying, which dinosaur did you steal from the zoo, the giraffe or the zebra? It's a wrong question. It can't be answered correctly. So Jesus says, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You've got a problem. Your very question reeks of your ignorance, right? You've got a problem. You, you don't even know the scripture or the power of God. Well, they did, they did cite a scripture that Moses did say in Deuteronomy 25. It's true. There were protocols in the law for, for, for someone who had married, but then wasn't a, they died before they were able to bring a son onto the earth because that son would be able to take, or daughter would be able to take the land that that, that father would have passed down to his line. It was an important law because it kept, um, it kept um, people from, like, massing up lots of land for themselves, right? You know, otherwise it was like, you know, your brother has a really great patch of land over here. You've got so not so great of a patch of land, but you're probably going to get it because you're the only two because it comes from your father's line. So he gets married, and then your brother has an accident, and now you have his land, right? No. No, that wasn't to go to your line. That was to go to eventually his children, so you would have to turn that over. You see this played out in the book of Ruth. It's a really funny story because this guy was really excited about getting the land of this, this dead relatives, hearing that all the men had died. And the only surviving person was a widow who was way past childbirth age. It was all his. And then he finds out that Ruth, right, this Moabite who was the widow of one of those men was alive. He's like, ooh, yeah, I don't want to do that, right? Well, anyway, they, they use this as fodder to really take down this idea of the resurrection. They come with their vast understanding, they waltz up to him in all their pride, and they say, what about that? What do you think about that? You don't even know the scriptures. How? He says, he says, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. One has nothing to do with the other. Some of you, I know, you're thinking right now, what? I'm not going to be married in heaven? No, you're not. You're not going to be married in heaven. There's no need for that. It's a completely different system. It's a completely different realm. It's like asking, now, if I buy a truck 
and I die before I'm able to pay it off. And then I, sent, I gave it down to my son, and he's got to make the truck payments, but he dies. And then the other son, he takes the truck payments, but then he dies. Who has to pay the debt for the truck in heaven? Because they all had it, right? It's kind of the same thing. One does not transfer to the other. If they'd known scripture, they would have totally understood that. Not only that, but they would have known it was a terrible argument. Then Jesus shows them what real understanding of scripture is by saying, as for the resurrection of the dead, since that's why you came here, right? Have you not read what is said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. What does, he, what does he mean by quoting that verse? He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God was pointing to one word, am. Not was. It doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am, currently, right now, the God of those men. God cannot be the God of the dead. He's, the dead. He's only the God of the living. So, what Jesus is initially saying is, if you, knew the, if you knew the law, if you knew Deuteronomy 25, then you should have known this verse. And when you read it, that should have been enough to show you there was a resurrection. So he schools them. He schools them. He takes off first their little paradigm, their little worldview, and then he shows them their error was that they have no understanding of Scripture. No understanding. Therefore, it's important for us to be like the Master. We want to be those kind of people, don't we? The kind of people that are able to do that? Isn't that the reason that you are afraid of evangelism? Isn't it? Aren't you afraid of being proven wrong? Aren't you afraid of being made a fool of? What if they ask you a question you don't know the answer? You'd have to say, I don't know. That's not that bad. It wasn't even that hard for me to say. I do it all the time. There's lots of times I don't know things. You're not promoting the glory of yourself when you do evangelism. You're, you're promoting the glory of God when you do evangelism. It's so freeing to do it that way. But you want to be able to address things. Therefore, you need an understanding of Scripture. And... We want to be able to instill that in those that we disciple to have that understanding of Scripture. Now, understanding, as I said before, comes in two ways. It comes from our understanding as we are taught. It also comes in our understanding through how the Holy Spirit instructs us. In 1 John chapter 2, the apostle John says in verse 26 of 1 John chapter 2, I write these things about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaching teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. To say that we don't need to be taught by men is not true, because John just said, I write these things to you so that you are not, right? About those who are trying to deceive you. But at the same time, when a deceiver comes, they usually need to instruct you about how to really look at Scripture, right? You know, because you guys are missing it. 
You know, Jehovah's Witnesses say, oh, you know, Jesus is actually an angel. Because it says in Job, see, the sons of God rejoice together. So it says Jesus is the son of God. God's just trying to point out that he's an angel, right? Never mind that word, only. <laughs> this is how they deceive. They say there's something wrong, and you didn't know it until I got to tell you. How blessed you are to finally get the truth about this matter right now. John's addressing those type of people when he says, hey, you don't need anybody teaching you, okay? Anything other than what you've already received from the Holy Spirit, okay? What you understand about Scripture and what we've taught you, the Holy Spirit is sufficient. You had all these, you had all these Judaizers, even in, in, uh, and Paul addresses them in Philippians. Why? Because they're taking what Paul's saying, right? And they're saying, well, yeah, but you also have to bow down to these regulations over here. In Galatians, Paul says, it's, so, it's, it's sad to me, right, how quickly you've, you've turned from the truth, from the gospel that I've presented to you, and gone to these extra things, to a gospel that I never gave to you. We have enough. We have the Spirit. I got to tell you, it's such a relief and such a joy to be able to get, to be able to, you can get down to scripture, you've been taught how to, how to understand it, and you begin to read it, and you begin to ask questions about it, and you begin to look and search, you begin to do research, you can look different commentaries and different tools, and you begin to grow in this richness, this knowledge. It's so encouraging to know that he that began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. It's a joy to know that God continues to teach. And it's such a relief as a discipler to know that I don't have to give them everything. Charlie gave me a great analogy last week. He says, you know, this preacher, he, he goes into this, there's this big storm, and his parsonage is right next to the chapel, so he goes into the chapel, and he's, he's not fingering anybody's going to show up. That storm was so bad. But a farmer does, because this farmer was used to that sort of weather, no big deal. He waltzes in, sits down, looks around, and the farmer's all by himself. Huh. And then the preacher gets up. He says, hey, you know, you're, you're the only one here. What do you want to do? The farmer says, well, you know, when I, when I go to feed the cattle, if only one shows up, I still feed that cow. pastor says, enough said. So he gets up there. He, he takes an offering. He has an, has an opening hymn. He reads a psalm. He... he, he uh, does communion, he does, he does a great sermon, he does a backup sermon, he takes a love offering. And when he's all done, he looks at the farmer and says, well, what do you think? The farmer says, well, when that one cow comes to eat, I don't generally give him the whole load. You're not responsible to pour out the entire, every drop of knowledge that you've ever learned in the years of study that you've done to try to put that on a disciple and cram it all in in a matter of 12 weeks or whatever. It's not going to happen. We set trajectory. What do I mean by that? Well, if you were going to shoot an arrow, you have all the control right there in the very beginning. But as soon as you let that arrow go, you have no more control. All the work that that arrow is going to do is going to do all on its own based on the trajectory that you've put into it. The Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go and he won't depart from that path. 
We train up our disciples in the way they should go. And we can trust the Holy Spirit to carry them along the rest of the way, to continue to learn everything after that. My mom doesn't show up to my house to feed me still. She doesn't wake me up in the morning to get to work. She doesn't do that. She doesn't need to do that. Believe it or not, I finally got to the place where I could leave the house and go do things on my own. You don't have to teach your disciples everything. You want to teach them the main things. The main things. And if they're hungry, they're going to have questions. And this is going to be one really exciting time in your life. And the worst time. That's real. We want you to be able to pour into people like Paul did. We just didn't dump knowledge on them. If that's the kind of discipler you want to be, if, if you want that relationship with someone to be able to do that with you, this is where we do it. This is a local church. I've gotten a blessing of seeing many men following the Lord. And every time I see that happen, I think, what in the world? How does that work? A dummy like me, and somebody goes off and does something like that. That's amazing. Guess what? God doesn't need your wisdom. He doesn't need your understanding. He needs you to input this into people. Just the basics into people. And let him do the rest of the work. Just as that anointing instructs you, it'll instruct your disciple. So what we do best and what we remind our disciples most is to abide in Christ. To abide in Christ. Living these truths out, getting this knowledge, and then living it out. Now that's different. That's what we call holiness. And that's what we'll talk about next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and Thank you for all that you bless us with in this body of believers. Thank you for opportunity to, to grow and learn. I pray that this, this body of believers more and more becomes people of the book. Lord, we're a laser light in a community to the world of what it looks like to be just like Jesus. We want to be just like you, Lord. We want to walk as you. We thank you for all the opportunities you give us, and I pray that you bless our fellowship. In Jesus' name.